So let's pray and let's go to the word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for preserving it for us. We thank you for the tens of thousands of copies of your scripture that we're able to have and compare and have the assurance and the confidence that what we have is what you have given. As we come to these two genealogies, we're going to see many, many names, most of whom we don't know. These, these texts spoke in volumes to your people in the first century when Matthew wrote and when Luke wrote. So please bless us with something of the same blessing that they received. Help us to understand their importance and their significance today. We ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. So, two genealogies. <coughs> Matthew chapter 1. Matthew writes the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon was the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah was the father of Asa, and Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, and Joram was the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham was the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh was the father of Ammon, and Ammon was the father of Josiah, and Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Akim, and Akim was the father of Eliud, and Eliud was the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer was the father of Mathan, and Mathan was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation in Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. In Luke chapter 3, Luke writes, beginning at verse 23, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maoth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, 
the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Marina, the son of Mattathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. Can I pause for breath? <laughs> the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. <sighs> now, why read all that? Because it's scripture. Because it's scripture. Granted, it doesn't have the same impact as John 3.16, but it's, it's scripture. And there's important reasons for it to be here. We're going to, we're going to talk about that. Uh, why are there two different genealogies? Um, there's some various theories about why we have two different genealogies, and, and, and they're so different. Uh, we, we notice some differences in them even, even before that. Matthew goes back as far as Abraham. Luke goes, goes as far back as Adam. Matthew's genealogy moves forward from Abraham to Christ. Luke begins with Christ and moves backward to Adam. Uh, Matthew's genealogy contains 15 out of the 22 kings of Judah. And Luke's genealogy mentions only David, the king. So why do we have two different genealogies? Well, there's a, there's a number of theories about this. Some say that Matthew gives Joseph's genealogy and Luke gives Mary's genealogy and other people say no that's completely wrong Matthew gives Mary's genealogy and Luke gives Joseph's genealogy some things some think that Matthew's genealogy represents Jesus royal line and Luke his physical lineage other other theories involve leveret marriage at different places along the genealogies uh, there's some suggestions that Mary's parents had no sons and that Mary was the oldest. There's a lot of ifs here, which would have made Joseph the heir to Mary's father. And that would explain why one would be Joseph's and one would be Mary's. And we can flip our coins to figure out which one's which. The truth is that we're simply not told. The problem with these two genealogies is, is that we're used to things in Scripture fitting together into something greater than the parts. But Matthew and Luke didn't write these as two parts of a whole. They both intended them to stand alone. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience predominantly. And so he, he makes the statement at the very beginning in the first verse, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the king, and the son of Abraham, the head of our race. Abraham is the first Hebrew. David is the king. Jesus is the, the ultimate Jew. 
and he's the king of Israel. Luke, on the other hand, is a Gentile. My wife pointed that out to me this morning after I preached in Creighton, so they didn't get to hear this part. But Luke is a Gentile writing for Gentiles, so he doesn't go back to Abraham. He goes back to Adam, the first man. So what we can say is this. While we don't know why there, there are the two and exactly how they relate to one another, we know that Matthew and Luke knew each other. They lived in the same area. They worked around the same area. They would have known each other. Both of them were aware of what the other had written, and both of them were fine with it. And just to trust that there's not a contradiction there, even though we don't have all the details. What I want to do this morning is, is simply enough draw three lessons from Matthew's genealogy and three from Luke's, and then bring it home to what it might mean to us today. The first lesson from Matthew's genealogy is that Matthew's phrasing deliberately parallels the family lists and genealogies that are found in the book of Genesis. Now, in the book of Genesis, the phrase that we see over and over again 11 times is, these are the generations of, not this is the genealogy of. But it's a very, very similar phrasing. And so in, in Genesis 2-4, we see these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Genesis 5 says these are the generations of Adam. Genesis 6 says these are the generations of Noah. Genesis 11 gives us the generations of Terah. Interestingly enough, Terah, not Abraham. Genesis 25 is the generations of Isaac. Genesis 37, the generations of Jacob. The, things about the, the thing about these, these major generations is that they're not simply ancestral lists. They're not the biblical version of Ancestry.com. They're like chapter headings. And they say, now the, the, the purpose of God, the work of God, what God is doing in his creation has taken a major shift. So it begins obviously with creation itself. That's the first major shift. Then we have Adam as the first man who falls, who, who plunges all of the human race into sin. We have Noah as, as the man who found favor with God and whom God rescued when he destroyed the earth by water. We have Terah, who is the father of Abraham, but also the father of Haran, who was the father of Lot, and Lot's story weaves into the, the biblical story. Isaac, of course, is significant. Jacob, of course, is significant. Genesis, 30, Genesis 37, the, these are the generations of Jacob. Now, what we might think is that we read, these are the generations of Jacob, and he kind of goes through the names, and then we can put a period to the generations of Jacob. But really, think about this. The generations of Jacob go from Genesis 37 to the end of the book of Malachi. The generations of Jacob is the whole history of Israel. The generations of Jacob is immensely long and complicated and involved. And so when Matthew writes the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he may as well be saying, these are the generations of Jesus Christ. Now there's, now there's this shift. And it's the final shift for this age. There will be no other shift for this age. It'll simply be brought to an end. But these are the generations of Jesus Christ. They're his ancestors. They're his birth. Growing up, as Luke records a little bit more of Jesus 
uh, boyhood than, than the rest of the Gospels do. Jesus' public ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit who was sent by Jesus to his disciples, the birth of the church, the preaching of the Gospel. So just as David and Isaiah and Samuel and Samson and Amos lived during the generations of Jacob, you and I are living during the generations of Jesus Christ. This is the shift. The second thing to point out is that Matthew is very careful to tie Jesus to both David and Abraham. Regarding David, toward the end of his life, David was given the promise of an eternal heir. The Lord says to him, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So Solomon provides a partial fulfillment of this. Solomon uh, was the king who was born of David's own body. He was descended of David. Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem from the time of the wilderness up until the time of David's death. Israel worshipped at a tabernacle. The rest of the people had houses of stone and wood, but God lived in a tent. And he was largely content to do that. David wanted to build the temple. God wouldn't let him because he was a man of war. So Solomon built it. But the ultimate fulfillment of this is through Jesus. It's it's Jesus who comes from David's body. He's the son of David. It's Jesus whose kingdom God has established. It's Jesus who has built a house for the name of Yahweh. And he has built that house out of living stones out of a royal priesthood, and it's his church. And of that church, of that kingdom, of that house, God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. When you establish the throne of the kingdom, you establish the kingdom. Jesus says in Matthew 13, no, Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The reason for that is that the gates of hell can't prevail against him. They can't prevail against his throne. So for all the troubles the church has had over the last 2,000 years, for all the ups and downs, for all of the fractures, for all of the the variations and and the, the division that we've experienced, the true body of Christ has never, never, never been overcome by the devil. Or by the world. It has remained. It has remained. Regarding Abraham, Yahweh commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. In Genesis 22, Abraham took a couple of servants and his son and wood and fire, which I would imagine would be coals and some kind of a carrier, and they headed off to Mount Moriah. When they got to Mount Moriah, they left the servants behind. Abraham and Isaac climbed up to the top of the hill. It's a mountain, they call it, but it's a hill. The thinking is that it's the hill now where the temple is, the temple mount, rather. Um, And on the way up, Isaac says, Dad, we've got the wood. 
and we've got the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Where's the animal? And Abraham says God will provide a lamb for himself. Well, they get there, they build the altar, they put the wood on it, he binds Isaac and lays him on it, and he takes the knife in his hand. And the Lord stops him and blesses his faith and obedience. And then it says in verse 13, Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there was a ram, a male sheep, a male lamb, an adult lamb, after it had been caught in the thicket by its horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in the place of his son. It's a picture of what Jesus would do as Jesus dies as a substitute. Why is it that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone? Because Jesus didn't just show us a, a, an example of how to be a good person. Jesus took the sins of his people upon himself, and he died on the cross in our place, as though our name was written above his head. See, Barabbas was supposed to be crucified with those other two thieves. And they let Barabbas go, and they nailed Jesus to Barabbas' cross. And Barabbas, if he had a brain in his head, he headed headed for the hills. But if Barabbas was kind of the foolish kind of person that, that many people are, he would have gone out to Calvary, to Golgotha, and he would have looked at Jesus hanging there and said to himself, that's my cross. I earned that by my sin. And Jesus dies in his place. That's the picture that Abraham was given when he went to sacrifice Isaac. Now, during the ministry of Jesus in John chapter 8, he's involved in this confrontation with the Jewish leaders. And Jesus says to them in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So what does Jesus mean by that? He wasn't born when Abraham was alive. In fact, that's exactly what they say. You're not even 40 years old. And Abraham saw you. And of course, Jesus then makes his claim to be Yahweh God. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. He uses the name Yahweh. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. He doesn't identify the moment that Jesus saw, but I think it's very likely that the moment was this substitute for Isaac, that Abraham looked at that and something in his heart said, oh, this is what Yahweh's doing. Somehow he's going to provide a substitute for sinners. Matthew knows that the people of Israel know God's promises to to Abraham and David intimately. And throughout his gospel, he presents Jesus as the king who reigns over all things and as the lamb of God, the substitute, who takes away the sins of the world. The third thing to point out with Matthew is that Jesus came to redeem sinners of every kind. Where do I get that from? Well, if you were listening, you heard the names, uh, you, you heard mention of four women. Three are named. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, and one is mentioned by reputation, the wife of Uriah, and and Matthew means Bathsheba. 
These four women were all Gentiles. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was married to, to Uriah the Hittite, which almost certainly means she was a Hittite. Three of the women, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba, are connected with sexual immorality in the scriptures. Tamar seduced her father-in-law because of injustice on his part. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho, and Bathsheba and David committed adultery, and their first child died. He married her, and the second child was Solomon. Yet the Lord God wove them into the history of his son. Well, what about Sarah? She believed she was faithful. What about Rebecca? You can't have Rachel because Jesus isn't descended from Benjamin or Joseph. He's, de he's descended from Judah, but he could, you could have had Leah. You, you could have had Aaron's wife, whoever she happened to be. There, there are other women in Scripture that, that are, are fine, upstanding, honorable women who are noteworthy. And Matthew names four, all of whom have big question marks over them. Why do that? Because Jesus came to save sinners of every kind. Because God didn't need to bring his son through this spotless, perfect, pristine line of ancestors. Matthew also mentions 15 of the 22 kings of Israel. Now, during, after the death of Solomon, the, the king, single kingdom of Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom became known as Israel. The southern kingdom became known as Judah. And by, when I talk about the kingdom of Israel, here I'm talking about the, 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 the combined kingdom with David and Solomon and then the southern kingdom with Judah. None of the northern kings are connected to Jesus in any way. So Matthew mentions 15 of the 22 kings. Israel had six godly kings. If you read their stories, you'll see usually around the time of their death some kind of an evaluation. And so-and-so died, slept with his fathers, and they laid him to rest with his fathers, and he did as his father David did. Or he did, that David was the gold standard. He did as his father David did. Or he did not do entirely as his father David did. Or he did not do as his father David did. So the scriptures name six godly kings. Matthew names them all. David, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Israel had three kings of mixed qualities, and Matthew names one of them Solomon. Israel had six bad kings, and Matthew names four, Rehoboam, Abijah, Joram, and Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin as it would be in Hebrew. And Israel had six kings and one queen, Athaliah, who were evil. Evil. And Matthew names four of them, Uzziah, Ahaz, Manasseh, and Ammon. Well, why not just pick the good kings? Matthew wants to show that Jesus is related to the kings, that he's connected to David. If you look at those in, in order in the scriptures, David, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah, Josiah 
is pretty close to the end of the kingdom. There were four or five maybe that followed him, but most of them were only in there for a few months or a year. So why not just, why not just pick the big ones? Why throw in the, some who are mixed and, and four who are just evil? Because Jesus came to save sinners. Hebrews 2 says he is not ashamed to call sinners his brothers. He's not ashamed. Jesus came to save sinners, not to run screaming from them. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. Matthew 9.11 says various places in the Gospels, the, the Pharisees are outraged that he eats with wicked people. But you know something? If he ate with wicked people, he'd probably eat with you too. And he'll eat with me. If he wasn't ashamed to call them brothers, he's not going to be ashamed to call me brother. Or you sister, if that applies. So what a reminder that no one is so good that they don't need a savior, and no one is so bad that Jesus can't save them. Let's talk about the gospel of Luke, three lessons from Luke. In verse 23 of Luke 3, Luke acknowledges the apparent disgrace of Jesus' conception. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. As was supposed is saying this is the common belief. This was the common view. How does that connect with with throwing shade on his conception? Well, because Joseph and Mary had apparently jumped the gun. In John chapter 8, I already mentioned it once, that there's this confrontation going back and forth with Jesus and the Pharisees, and they're being hard-nosed, and he is not yielding in the least. And they, they reach this point where they simply insult him and say, we were not born of sexual immorality. And the implication is saying, we know your history. We know that you were. See, Joseph and Mary were betrothed. That was a binding covenant relationship legally they were considered husband and wife it wasn't like a modern engagement that can be called off with a phone call or a text message the only way to end a betrothal was by obtaining a legal divorce there was a process that had to be followed well mary one day picks up and she goes south to judah she they're in nazareth and galilee she goes south to judah because she's heard that her cousin elizabeth is with child Prior to that, of course, the angel had come to Mary and said, you're going to conceive by the Holy Spirit. And she did. And she was with Elizabeth for about three months until John the Baptist was born, and then she came back, and she comes back pregnant. Matthew 1 says Joseph was a righteous man, and he didn't want to put her to public shame. And so he was trying to arrange a quiet way to, to divorce her. He didn't want to shame her. He didn't want to cause a lot of issues. She had enough trouble. But he had a dream, and the angel Gabriel came to him and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The child she's carrying has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
You'll call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Joseph got up and he did what the angel said. He took Mary as his wife. Now it says he did not know her until after Jesus was born. They didn't consummate the marriage until after Jesus was born. But that word until means that they did consummate the message. And in various places in the Gospels and once in the book of Acts, we have references to Jesus' brothers and sisters. Normal marriage relationship. But the common view was that Joseph and Mary had jumped the gun. It wasn't quite adultery because they were married, but it was still a sexual immorality. It was still considered fornication. It's not until the apostles began preaching in the early church that the the account in Matthew and the account in Luke begins to be proclaimed. Jesus never proclaimed it. Jesus never said, no, 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 don't throw that on me. And just as a, remind you of, as a reminder of his wisdom and providence, when, when people would kind of look at Mary twice as she passed by, Jesus never stepped out and said, no, 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 wait a second. That's not what happened. Don't blame her. He just let people think what they were going to think. The second lesson from Luke is that I think he gives us an unbroken genealogy. Now, Matthew gives us 42 names. Matthew is, is really focused on tying Jesus to David as the son of David. And if you look in Hebrew, in Hebrew they don't have numbers like we have numbers. They use letters to stand in place for numbers. So the, the three consonants that form the name David add up to 14. And the thinking is he's got 14, 14, and 14 because he's really trying to ram home for the Jewish readers that Jesus is the son of David and the rightful king. Luke, on the other hand, gives us 78 generations. Jesus is number 78 down from Adam over a 4,000-year period of time. The 19 generations from Adam to Abraham fill 2,000 years. They fill half of that time, and that leaves 59 generations. And those 59 generations go very easily into 2,000 years at about, at, if you consider 40 years as a generation, then that's actually about 2,300, 2,400 years. Very easy to say Luke had access to records that showed Jesus going to Adam without a break. Why would he do that? Well, because Jesus was not God putting on a costume and pretending to be a man. Jesus was God taking on human flesh. Never ceasing to be God, but taking human flesh to himself living in our world, breathing our air, drinking our water, walking our land, knowing what it was to live this life. The only difference between Jesus and us is a massive difference. But there's only one in terms of humanity, and that is he was sinless. He was sinless. We are not but the rest we share. The likelihood is Jesus buried Joseph at some point. 
In the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus at the age of 12. They'd gone to the feast. Jesus stayed back when everybody left. They found him after three days in the temple, but he was 12. And Joseph and Mary are both there. We never hear about Joseph again. And so the likelihood is that Jesus had to bury his dad. Well, I've, I've done that. Some of you have done that. So he knows. He knows. And third, it's going to be obvious to you when I say it. Matthew moves forward from Abraham. Luke moves backwards from Jesus. And the last man mentioned by Luke is Adam, who God directly created. Now, most of our Bibles in in this genealogy in Luke have something like the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathoth, the son of Levi, and, and, and on and on. That word son of is not in the original text. Luke just cuts straight to it. He's not describing 78 generations. He's describing Jesus with a lengthy history. So really it would be Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as supposed the son of Joseph, the son is there. The son of Joseph, of Eli, of Mathet, of Levi, of Melchi, of Jana, of Joseph, Mattathias. I won't read it all again. What's the significance there? Well, it, it might surprise you, but there are a number of Gregory Lawhorns in the United States right now. There's even one who's 62, and I'd love to know when he was born. That would be weird. Maybe I was switched at birth. Maybe his parents are billionaires or something. So how do you know which Gregory I am? Well, I am Gregory of Billy, of William, of Robert, of Lewis. My dad was Billy. My grandfather was William. My great-grandfather was Robert. My great-great-grandfather was Lewis. And there's no other Gregory Lawhorn of Billy, of William, of Robert, of Lewis. So how do we know that Jesus is who he is? Because there's only one. Jesus was not an uncommon name. It was the name Joshua. It was one of the common names of their time. But there's only one with this line of descent. Instead of beginning with Adam and moving forward to Jesus and kind of building the story as it unfolds and then arriving at him, it begins with Jesus and then it, it, it moves backwards in time to Adam. Why? Well, the last two phrases of Luke 3 are the son of Adam, the son of God. And Luke 4 says, now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan after being baptized and was being led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Adam was tempted in the garden. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. They were both tempted by the devil Neither Adam nor Jesus had a fallen nature. I don't know if you realize this, but we don't need the devil. We carry our temptation within us. James says, let no one say when he's tempted, God is tempting me. We're tempted when we're carried away by our own desires. But Adam didn't have that. He didn't have an internal fallen nature. And Jesus didn't have an internal fallen nature. Both of them required external tempters. 
The tempter succeeded with Adam, but he failed with Jesus. Adam plunged us into death and darkness. Jesus lifts us into light and glory. Everybody in Adam dies. Everybody in Christ lives. We are naturally born into Adam. We must be born again by the spirit of God into Jesus. And that happens by grace and through faith. It's the work of God. It is not the work of man so that no one can boast. So let's, let's bring this home. What do we take out of, uh, what do we take home from Jesus' genealogies? I, I want to just emphasize two things for you. The, the first is that Jesus did not pretend to be a man. His humanity was not a costume. He didn't put on a mask. He was the 78th from Adam, born of a long line of sinners. Some of those sinners were faithful and godly as far as sinners go. Some of them were wretched and evil, but he was unashamed of being conceived in Mary's womb. He was unashamed of his genealogy. He was unashamed to grow into adulthood in the same way you and I do. Jesus Christ was certainly more than a man. He is first God, the second person of the Trinity. But he is never less than a man. Not once he was conceived not once he was conceived. And in his resurrection, the same body that was crucified was raised from the dead. So right now, Jesus in his humanity is a glorified man. And as God, he's fully God. We will never be like him as God, ever. We will be exactly like him as glorified men and women. We're being made, made into his image. John says, beloved, we don't know what we will be, but we know that we will be like him because we will see him as he is. What is he now? We can't begin to comprehend it. John saw him the day of the resurrection, several times after that, before the ascension. And Jesus just looked like Jesus. He was just, he was just Jesus. It, it, it's not like Lord of the Rings where Gandalf shows up and his clothes are white. He's just Jesus. But when John sees him in Revelation chapter 1, he falls over like he's dead because the glory is shining through. So the first thing is Jesus did not pretend to be a man. He was truly human while being fully God. And second, Jesus took on human flesh to save sinners. Now, I know that you know this, but we've also got a tendency to misunderstand it. So Hebrews 2.9 says, We see him who was made for, a, made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. By the way, tasting death didn't mean that, doesn't mean that he didn't die. It means that death didn't consume him. He tasted it. It didn't taste him. 
And a few verses later, that's Hebrews 2.9, a few verses later in 15 at 16, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So Jesus became a man to save sinners. He didn't come to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. He came to save those who would believe. Here's the thing that we need to understand. Our sin is not an obstacle to God's work. I think we tend to think that. I've sinned. I've I've done this thing and I just realized it or I've done the thing and I knew before I did it I was going to do it. And now I've... I have disrupted God's purposes. I've interrupted God's purposes. I I just think about a mom in in the kitchen trying to make dinner. And she's up to her elbows in whatever she's up to her elbows in. And and she hears, Mommy, look. And she turns around and there's the the two-year-old who's decided to change his own diaper. And now she has to stop everything that she's doing and go take care of that so she can get back to what actually matters in a sense. But our sin is why Jesus came. Dealing with our sin is God's work in creation. All creation was created for his glory. Stars, planets, mountains, rivers, conquer spaniels, honey badgers, monarch butterflies, oak trees. It was all created for his glory so that he could manifest his glory by revealing his justice toward some sinners and his mercy toward others. So Jesus didn't become a star or a planet. He didn't become a giraffe or a penguin. He didn't become an apple or an oak tree. He became a man, a human being. Hebrews 2.16 says, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Well, don't fallen angels need his help? They face the lake of fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels. They face eternal torment in a place designed to torment them. Don't they need his help? Oh, they certainly do, but there's none available. He didn't become an angel. He doesn't save angels. They have no savior. They have no hope. There is no gospel for them. Jesus gives help to the seed of Abraham. Who are the seed of Abraham? Well, Galatians and Romans explain that. It's not those who are of the blood of Abraham, but those who are of the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. We are credited with righteousness. That's the word justified. We are justified by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. Well, I'm going to believe in him, and then I'm going to do this good thing. No, you've just lost justification. Because you're subtracting from what Jesus did to add your own. And God won't accept that. We have to empty our pockets. We have to strip down to to bare souls and say, only Jesus can save me. 
And that's the very thing he wants to do. That's the very thing he, he delights to do. I feel so terrible as a Christian when I sin. And there are times that I sin accidentally, and there are times that I know this is sin. I shouldn't do it, and I do it anyway. And I'm so ashamed. And the last person I want to talk to is God. But Jesus delights when I come to him. That's why he came. You are not an obstacle to his work. You are his work. If your faith is in Christ, you have his undivided attention. Are you Abraham's seed? Is your faith the faith of Abraham who believed God? Are you willing to just let everything else fall? Is God pleased when we do good things? Of course. But he won't justify you based on those good things. Somebody was asking before church when, when Grace is coming home. She's coming home on the 21st. She'll be here for the sing, which will be awesome. She doesn't have to do anything but show up. And we'll both be in tears. She doesn't have to do anything but be here. She can come home, put on her PJs, grab her iPad, turn on the TV, grab her knitting, and sit. And we just are going to love seeing her do that. Can you imagine if Grace came home and said, I'm not worthy to be your child, so I'm going I'm to come and do all of this stuff for you. We would be saying, no, 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 no. None of that is necessary. You are ours. Once you've been born again in Christ, you belong to God. We're saved by grace through faith, and we're kept by grace through faith. Father, we thank you for that truth. We thank you for the grace that has been poured out through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask that you would press deeply into the heart of every person here this truth. Perhaps the greatest area of need in the life of a Christian is to understand the totality of your grace and love. And to know that you require nothing of us but our trust. And that you will accept nothing from us but our trust. It's so important, in fact, that you don't even leave that to ourselves. You give us the faith we need. And I ask that you would increase our faith and that you would grant us that ongoing strength and stubborn faith. Have mercy on anyone who doesn't know you. We thank you in Jesus' precious name.